listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So I thought for my last sermon, you know, should I go through all the things that I've learned in the last 30 years? And I thought, probably only going to get it going about quarter of uh, six, so there's no way I could go through all of that. So I thought what I'd do, rather than try to be profound, um, I thought I'd just take one of my favorite sermons and preach it. Uh, this is the third time I've preached this message in 30 years here at the village. Hopefully, um, uh, you don't remember it. Um, <laughs> Dave told me he doesn't remember things week to week, so... Uh, I'm feeling pretty good about it. I've used this uh, theme a lot in recovery class on Monday nights because this is really uh, expresses the kind of ministry that uh, I believe God has given us here. I wrote this message in 1979 when uh, I was pastoring in Sami Valley and submitted it to a, um, a sermon contest uh, through a preaching journal. And um, so that's the, that's the genesis of this uh, uh, this message. So, uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 4, verse 43, the last story there in the fourth chapter, and then the first 15 verses of uh, chapter 5. This morning we're going to, or this evening, we're going to look at uh, two stories in John's Gospel. This first one from chapter 4 and the second one from chapter 5. And both these stories raise a question in our minds as we look at them, which is a question I want us to think about through this entire message because it's a very, very important question. It seems like almost a rhetorical question when Jesus asks it to um, uh, this one person in, in our story, but it, it really isn't. It's the question that Jesus asked one of the people that we're encountering in this story. It's a question that says, do you want to get well or do you want to stay sick? That's implied in the, in, in the question. Do you enjoy not being whole, not being complete, not being fulfilled, not being satisfied? It's a question that our stories ask us, and I want us to think about that question because I think it's a very profound question for us as well as believers. Do we want Jesus to make our lives whole, or do we like always having something to complain about? Something to always say, yeah, but it can't happen to me, or some other excuse. Now let's look at our text in uh, chapter 4, verse 43. It starts out and it says this, after two days. Now you remember that Jesus has been staying with the Samaritans outside of that uh, village of Sychar after he encountered the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman by the well. He stays there in Samaria and he ministers to those people for two days. And so then now the text says, after two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now in, in most of the gospels, when Jesus uses this phrase, he's referring to his home country of Galilee, of Nazareth, etc. But here in our text, he's referring to Jerusalem as his own town. And he's leaving Jerusalem, and he's returning now back home to Galilee. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, the text says. 
they had seen all he had done in Jerusalem during the Passover time. They'd heard all that he said, and they were amazed at uh, the things that Jesus was doing and the things that he was saying. They were so proud of him, and now he's on his way back to uh, uh, Galilee. It's kind of like a hero's welcome. Local boy makes well. And uh, so he's quite a, quite a celebrity as he moves home. And the text goes on and says, Now once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. And when his, this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, I must make a couple comments here uh, about the relationship that exists between this man and Jesus, the royal official and Jesus. Uh, first of all, in terms of their re relationship, this is a person who's a very high official in Herod's government. He probably worked in the palace in some kind of a position. Maybe he was like a secretary of state or an ambassador to some prominent country. He probably worked in the, um, uh, in the uh, uh, palace. He certainly had a cabinet level position. He was a royal official. And he lived in Capernaum, which is about 25 miles away from Canaan. It was a place where primarily those who were involved in government, where they lived, because they were much more dignified than these Galilean fishermen and farmers who lived in Cana. Now, normally, this official, who was probably a Roman, uh, at least he was not Jewish in the sense that Jesus was Jewish, uh, uh, he was educated, he was obviously very savvy in terms of his relationships, in terms of the social mores of the day, and particularly culturally, the things that divided his people from uh, the, the Galileans, those people. He was very aware of what was going on. And normally he would have absolutely nothing to do with a person like Jesus, a carpenter, uh, a laborer who comes from this little two-bit town of Nazareth, and is now visiting this other two-bit little town of, of Cana. Jesus is in a different class of people from this royal official. And normally there would be no association between this nobleman, this royal official, and Jesus. But there's a need that breaks down the barrier between them. This man comes to Jesus. He finds Jesus, in fact, and he begs him in agony as a father who's deeply concerned about his son. He has gone to every doctor in Capernaum. He's probably had Roman doctors come in off the Mediterranean, uh, across the Mediterranean, off of a boat. He's, he's talked to everybody who knew anything, and they all told him, we can't help your son. Your son is going to die. And so he's incredibly concerned about his son. And in Jesus, he perceived that maybe here was someone who would be able to help his son. You know, it's amazing how in the midst of a crisis, barriers come down, isn't it? He needed Jesus. And so he went to him, he found him, and he begged him to come to Capernaum, 25 miles away, to come down with him and heal his son. He believed that Jesus had the power to heal his son in his person. And so he wanted Jesus to come and make his son better. Now, Jesus, if you look at the text, interestingly enough, puts up a roadblock. 
He puts up a barrier between himself and this royal official. Look at the next thing Jesus says. He says, you know, unless you people see a miraculous sign or wonder, you'll never believe. You know, there were probably lots of people who were around Jesus as he was returning back to Galilee as a hero coming home uh, who had heard all the reports of the things that Jesus was doing and said, and they were hanging around so they could see some of them. Let's see what else Jesus is going to do. And maybe he's putting this royal official in that same uh, camp. He says, the only reason you're here is so that you can see me perform. Is that your motivation? He says to the royal official. Is that why you're here? He asked this man a theological question. He asked him about his faith. He says, is your faith based upon what you've seen me do, or is your faith based on who I am? Where's your faith based? What's your motivation in believing? He has him to have a theological discussion about who Jesus is. Now, this royal official does not want to get into a theological discussion at all. He could care less about this whole line of discussion. He just brushes away that whole thing. And the next thing he says is, Sir, uh, a title of position, Sir, Rabbi, Teacher, Honored One, I don't care about this stuff. My son is close to death. Come down before my child dies. This guy's agenda is not dealing with theology at all. He breaks right through all of that. He says he's not thrown back from his mission by this roadblock that Jesus puts up. He goes on and he says, listen, I don't care about any of that stuff. What I care about is my sick kid, and I believe that you can take care of him. Please come down to Cana and make my son well. Now the test goes on and it says, Jesus saw this man's faith. Faith in himself, faith in Jesus, that Jesus can do what he needs. And so Jesus responds, you may go, your son will live. Now notice that the man hears what Jesus said. He hears what Jesus said. He's listening to Jesus' word. Jesus says, you may go, your son will live. And the man believes him. And he goes back to Capernaum, and he discovers that his son is alive. He's living. In fact, he discovers that at the exact time when Jesus said, your son will live, is when his son started to get well. Amazing. The man believed that even the word of Jesus, <coughs> the speech of Jesus, had power to accomplish what Jesus said. Now, the first sign in John's gospel, of course, is the changing of water to wine. You remember that story. And John tells us that's the first sign that revealed the glory of God in what Jesus had done. And what it reveals, what the changing of water to wine revealed about Jesus uh, in the person of, of God is that he had power to do things like turning water to wine. And if you go to the end of chapter 4 here, you see that it says here that this was the second sign. And so the question is, what does this sign reveal about Jesus? What does it tell us about Jesus as God's son? And what this sign tells us is that it's just like when God said, let there be light, and there was light. When God said, let there be earth, and there was earth. There was earth. When Jesus speaks, things happen. The first sign, Jesus has power in himself to do things. The second sign shows us that Jesus has power in his word. He speaks, and 25 miles away, this kid gets well. 
That's what this sign is uh, showing us. In Jesus' presence, there's power, and in Jesus' word, there's power. Now, notice that in this encounter, this man came to Jesus. Now, in the next story, we find Jesus finding somebody. Like he found the Samaritan woman, he now finds the person in our next story. So look at chapter 5, verse 1 here. It says this, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem to the feast of the Jews. You know, if it weren't for John's gospel, we would have the impression that Jesus only made one trip to Jerusalem. If you look at uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the only time Jesus goes to Jerusalem uh, as an adult is when the week before he's arrested and uh, uh, falsely accused and, uh, uh, and crucified and is raised from the dead. But in John's gospel, John lets us know that Jesus was a frequent visitor to Jerusalem at least four times and perhaps more, uh, John tells us, Jesus was uh, in, in Jerusalem. He was just as well known in Jerusalem and in Judea as he was in Galilee. He'd been there many times. Now, this is one of those times that he was going up to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast. Now, the text goes on and says this. Now, there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool in which Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now, this is a place that you could go to Jerusalem today and visit, Ryan. You guys going to go to buy this pool when you go to a, on your trip to a Jerusalem? So you could go and see this very place if you take that trip with, um, uh, with Ryan. <clears throat> it's, it's very interesting because for years... Uh, and years and years, scholars thought that John had made a mistake because they could not find a, a covered pool by, um, uh, by the Sheep Gate called Bethesda. And so they said, well, John was thinking of some other pool by this, but it certainly wasn't Bethesda because there isn't one there. But you know, in the last 50 years, something very interesting has uh, taken place. A certain Catholic order of priests has gone to Jerusalem and they have made it their task to excavate at the Sheep Gate. Now you have to go down about seven feet in order to get to the first century level. And there they've discovered this pool with five colonnades and in fact a sign on the wall that says Bethesda. Now that's amazing. What we've learned is that John is probably the most accurate of all of the gospel writers, that John really is attuned to the details in his stories. He's very, very careful. There really is this place that you can go and see today. It's a very interesting place. And some of your Bibles at this point, if you notice, have a little addition. Sometimes it's parentheses in the text. Sometimes it's a note that goes down to the bottom of the page and gives you a little paragraph that explains more about what this pool is like. Now, it's not part of the original text or our base, best text. Somebody added this to help us understand what was, uh, what's taking place. But this is kind of like a Lourdes place that has the tradition that there's a, a, an angel that lives in the bottom of the pool, this very deep pool. And every once in a while, the angel stirs the waters and there's these bubbles and all of this stuff that comes up. And if you get in the water while it's being stirred and all the bubbles are there, you get healed. Now, this pool is very much like that, except it has some different rules. If you get in the water first, only the first one in, when the bubbles are stirring, gets healed. 
Nobody else does. Just so you have to be first. That's the, that's the rules. If you got in first, you got healed. Now, the text continues on, and it says this. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. Broken people. People whose lives were fractured, that were not together. They were disabled people. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there, the text continues, who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, it doesn't tell us how long he's been living by the side of the pool, but, you know, if there was an accident or something that happened that made him paralyzed, uh, maybe he's been there for 35 years. Let's, let's say 35 years he's been lying by this pool. Day after day after day after day, he's come to the pool with the hope of getting healed, and day after day after day, someone else gets in the water before he does. He doesn't get healed. Do you have any kind of any idea what kind of condition this human being would be in? I mean, here's a guy who's been disappointed and disappointed and disappointed and disappointed to the point where he's totally alone, probably despondent, abandoned, discouraged, depressed, broken. His entire life is in shambles because he can't get into the water. 35 years of coming to the, uh, to the waters and continually being disappointed. I, I, I can hardly imagine such disappointment. Can you imagine the negative kind of attitude this guy has? A chronically depressed person. Have you ever been around somebody like that? Don't you just wait for their phone calls? <laughs> or for them to run up to you at church? No, we don't. Because people like that are a drag. You know, we don't want to be around them. Everything is so filtered through their own particular experience of depression. I, I want you to see that this kind of very depressed person, it's this kind of person that Jesus seeks out. And of all of the disabled people who are there, Jesus finds this guy, the most messed up, Johnny the Chronic. He finds him and asks him if he wants to be whole. Jesus goes and finds this particular man. Now listen to this. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Very simple question. Do you want to get well or do you enjoy being sick? I mean, that's what's implied. I don't know. Do you want to get well? At any rate, I believe Jesus was asking him a legitimate question. He wanted to know if he was ready to get, have his life come together. Do you want to get well? Now look at the man's reply. He says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else gets down ahead of me. I never get in the pool. He probably went on to say, you know, they ought to have a numbering system like they do in first-rate bakeries. <laughs> you know, you take a number, and then when it's your turn, they come and they put you in the pool and you get healed. He probably saw Jesus and his disciples and said, you know, if you guys really want to help, why don't you form a wedge and the next time the water is stored, push everybody out of the way and, and put me in the water so I can get healed because, because I never get healed. It never happens for me. Wow, it's just amazing. And Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? And this man answers a totally different question, doesn't he? Jesus says, do you want to get well? And this man answers the question, why are you here? Well, I'm here because I don't have anybody to put me into the water. I get, and and he, goes, he goes on and on. Maybe he's been asked that question more often. 
Maybe people have been seeing him for the last 35 years and wondering, why are you still here? You know, why haven't you gotten in the what? Why are you still here? Maybe he's answered that question more. Maybe he looked at Jesus and saw his disciples and a couple of them had clipboards. And he thought, uh-oh, another group from the University of uh, yeah, Jerusalem down here doing a sociological survey as to why all these bums are lying here by the pool. Why are you here? Why are you in this condition? You know, he's got all of these reasons why. Jesus says, do you want to get well? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to have your life come together, become congruent? And this guy tells a story about why it can't happen. Poor me. This man hears everything through such a highly filtered eardrum. Everything is heard in terms of his depression. Now, notice how different the royal official was. He heard Jesus, didn't he? He heard Jesus. He's listening with his ears open, and Jesus says, go back to Capernaum, your son lives, and he hears him. This man doesn't even hear the question. Now, I want to make a comment here about Jesus. Jesus interrupts this downward spiral of depression, of low-grade paranoia, myopia, this incredible sense of discouragement. He just interrupts this guy with one of the most electrifying statements in the entire New Testament. This guy is saying, sir, I have no one to put me into the water and the water gets stirred. Someone else always gets in ahead of me. And he takes a breath. And as he does that, Jesus just says, uh, gives him this liberating command, get up, pick up your mat and get out of here. Wow. Jesus says, I've had enough of this. Get up, get up, stop it. Let's do something different here. Let's fix this situation. Do you want to get well? Great, get up. The comment I want to make here is that Jesus is free to act on behalf of this man. This man takes no initiative at all. Jesus just breaks through with sheer grace and says, get up, pick up your mat, and get out of here. This text shows us that even in the midst of despair and discouragement and brokenness, disappointment, Jesus is free to break through that downward spiral of depression and heal this man. Now, in the first story we looked at, Jesus looked for faith, didn't he? He looked for the, did this man have faith? But it doesn't require any faith in this story. You know, we have to be careful that we don't set up systems of how to get well or systems of how to have answered prayer. You know, do it this way. Say these words, do it this way. Pray in Jesus' name, you know, on and on and on, and your prayers will be answered. Jesus will heal you. You know, texts like this just destroy all those systems. Jesus does not make this guy's healing conditional upon anything. He just breaks through with sheer grace. Boom, get up, pick up your mat, get out of here. Walk around, don't come back. Change your life. Karl Barth has a, has a great statement. He says that in the Gospels, Jesus never compromises his freedom or our freedom. That's such good news. He never makes people act in a certain way. Unless you do it this way, Jesus says, I won't heal you. He never says that. Sometimes he does it this way. Sometimes he does it that way. Sometimes he doesn't do it at all. Why? I don't know. He doesn't tell us. Jesus is free. He's free to do what he wants to do to meet our needs. You know, John always asks us to ask this question as we read his gospel. He's asking us, what would happen to me if this happened to me? What would my life be like if Jesus made me whole? If Jesus said to me, okay, get up, pick up your mat, and get out of here, you're whole. 
What would my life look like? What would happen to me <clears throat> if, if Jesus found me, if Jesus encountered me? What would happen to me in the midst of my hurt, in the midst of my depression, in the midst of my discouragement? What would happen to me? And the way you answer that question is by looking to see what happened to this man. What happens to this man is probably the same thing that would happen to us. Let's look and see what happens to him. Well, he picked up his mat and he began to walk around literally everywhere. And the text goes on, the next line. And the day on which this happened was the Sabbath. Trouble ahead. You can almost smell it. And so the Jews said to this man, who had just been healed, it's the Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. Isn't that just like Jesus? I mean, he meets Jesus, Jesus cures him, and the next thing that happens, he's in trouble. You know, now this guy's never been in trouble with breaking the Sabbath law before in his life. That's one thing about his profession, lying by the pool of Bethesda, is that he'd never broken the Sabbath law, ever before, never. He encounters Jesus, and the first thing that happens is he's in trouble because he breaks the Sabbath law. <laughs> wow. I, I think John is giving us a little humor here. Uh, I think any first century Jew would see the irony. A wonderful happens to, something wonderful happens to this man. Jesus makes him whole, and the next thing he knows, he's in trouble. You see, of all the commandments of God, in the first century, the one that has been trivialized the most is the, is the Sabbath, is the commandment about the, the Sabbath. It's become a, a, a commandment that, is made, that we are made to keep. There's all these rules that we have to keep in order to fulfill that commandment. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. Jesus says, listen, the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And so the, the, it's been totally uh, trivialized. And in fact, this is going to be one of the issues that gets Jesus in trouble as you continue on in the Gospel of John. But this man is in trouble. And the guy says, he bears witness. Look at what he says in the next verse. The man who made me well said for me to pick up my mat and walk. He says, listen, I'm not doing this because I think it's a good idea. I'm doing this because the guy told me to pick up my mat and get out of there. And so they say to them, oh, well, who was it that, um, uh, that, uh, that made you well? And now look at what the man says in the next line. The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Isn't that incredible? The guy didn't even know who it was who had healed him. Jesus broke through not to get any kind of notoriety, not so that people could say, wow, that was really great. Look what Jesus just did. Jesus broke through this guy's neurosis just to make him whole, just to make his life come together. That's why Jesus did it. Jesus made him physically whole. That was enough. But now notice the next thing that happens to him. Not only does he get in trouble, <clears throat> not only does he become a witness talking about what happened to him, he now has to give accountability of why he's doing this. But before he can, Jesus encounters him in the temple. Jesus continues to find this man. Obviously, he's not finished with him. He finds him in the temple and says, Ah, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. <laughs> worse? 38 years, the guy's been a cripple. And that something worse could happen to you? Wow. It's kind of a humorous statement there. Now, I'm sure that Jesus said much more than this to the man. But Jesus found this person. And not only breaks through in terms of healing him physically, but now calls him into a responsible life 
of righteousness. He treats him now as a moral person, not just a physical person. He, he treats him as a person who's in a spiritual relationship with God. He says to him, in essence, ah, now you've been made whole. Now see that nothing worse happens to you. Get your life in order spiritually, is what he says to this man. He welcomes him and challenges him into the life of righteousness, just like he did with the woman of Samaria. This is one of the characteristics of Jesus in this gospel. He always relates to us as whole people. He, not, not, not just a man or a woman, not just a Jew or a Gentile or a person who's either healthy or sick or a person who's a sinner or saved, but as a whole person, physical as well as moral, a whole person. Amazing. And he brings it together in our story. As a moral issue, he, he forgives his sins, and as a physical issue, he makes him healthy. He always brings it together as whole persons, and that's what he does to this man. He calls them into a responsible lifestyle. He's gotten in trouble. He's been accused of breaking the Sabbath law. He has to go out and find who it was that told him this, and he goes and finds out it's Jesus. And the man runs and tells the Jews that it was Jesus of Nazareth that healed him. Now, that's a real witness, isn't it? You know, he goes and tells who did it, and he gets Jesus in trouble. But that's, ought to, that's what ought to happen when we bear witness. I love the definition that Karl Barth has of the church. Barth says this, he says, the church is real people in a real place making a real uproar and Christ gets in trouble. That's the definition of the church. That's what we ought to be about and that's what happens here in our text. The man is called into a righteous way of life and now he has to be responsible for who he is. Is that what you want to have happen to you? Do you want to get well? See, that's what this, this text is asking us. Before we leave this text, I, there, there's three thoughts uh, I, I want to share with you tonight. The first one is this. As, as you consider this person by the pool, uh, and as you consider your, your own life, I think that in some cases and in some ways, it's harder to be well than it is to be sick. It's harder to be well and whole and responsible and together than it is to be sick discouraged, depressed, and angry, and frustrated, and paranoid, and all of those other things. In some ways, it's easier to be sick than it is to be healthy. Have you ever thought about that? Because I think it is. When this man was by the pool, he had it easy, didn't he? I mean, people brought him there every day. They took him home at night. They brought him food. They bought him clothes. He couldn't do anything. So people did everything for him. I mean, he, he had it easy. Now he's healed. He has to walk around. He's breaking the law. He has to go find out who did this and that. He has to go give an answer. Now he has to be accountable. He has to be responsible for how he lives. Be careful how you live or something worse will happen to you. In some ways, it's harder for this person as a whole person than it is as a sick person. Do you really want that? Do you really want to be whole? It's important that we understand that it might be more difficult for you to be whole than it is for you to be sick and broken. You know, I meet a lot of people over the last 30 years in my ministry who I think enjoy being sick. Some emotionally, but most I, I meet enjoy being sick spiritually. They have all these stories like the man had at the pool. You know, my parents just shoved Christianity down my throat, you know, and when I was little, and now I, I don't want anything to do with it. 
They have all, all these stories. You know, my dad was a leader in the church, but, but he was so mean. He beat up my mom, and he hit us kids, and he wasn't much of it. If that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. You know, we have all these stories about what keeps us sick, about why it can't happen to me. You know, there are all these stories with all these reasons that keep people coming from faith. It's just a lot easier to be sick spiritually than it is to get well, than it is to get whole. Jesus calls us to be responsible people. He calls us into a life of righteousness. Now be careful how you live so that something else doesn't happen to you that's worse than that. There's a responsibility, there's an accountability for who we are and what we've been called to do when we become a whole person. See, we love to have excuses. We want to feel like victims all the time. You know, we, we say things like the guy in West Side Story said, uh, he said, I, I'm depraved because I was deprived. You know, wow. You know, I can just see this guy. The next day he's walking down the street, somebody walks up to him and say, oh, Johnny the Chronic, you've been made well, wow. Hey, Johnny, a little while ago, I loaned you a bunch of money because you said you couldn't work and you needed to buy some clothes and stuff and you didn't have any money, so I gave you some money. And I, I didn't expect that you'd be able to pay me back, but now you look pretty healthy, Johnny. You're up and walking around and stuff. How about next week? It looks like you can get a job now. How about paying me back next week? All of a sudden, the guy's responsible. He's never had to be responsible before. He has to carry his own weight. As Paul says in Thessalonians, stand at your post. Be responsible. That's what it means to be well. And then I have a second observation that, um, you know, maybe stretching the text a little, but I, I've thought about this some, and especially in our context, I wonder if this guy wasn't just a little bit disappointed with how Jesus made him whole. You know, for years, he's been sitting by the pool and watching other people, and I think he's been dreaming about the bubbles. You know, what it's going to feel like. When somebody drops him in there and woohoo, you know, I mean, it's going to get that thrill, that, that moment. It's going, to be, it's going to be so exciting when that happens. And then Jesus comes along and Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and get out of here. What, no bubbles? <laughs> That's all? You know, sometimes we have these fantasies about what it's going to be like to be forgiven. Or what it's going to like to be in a right relationship with Jesus. Or to get over this or through this, etc. We've heard all these stories about these great Christian teachers that uh, are on TV and stuff, and all these stories that happened to them, women of faith and, you know, promise keepers and all of this kind of stuff. And we hear all these stories and we're thinking, well, maybe that's what's going to happen to me. And then we get our stuff together with Jesus and no fireworks, no bubbles, just Jesus saying, okay, now get on with your life. Be whole. Wow. But see, sometimes... Jesus does give us bubbles, but it's up to Jesus. Jesus does it any way he wants to do it, not the way that we feel like it, because he's free. He's free to take care of us. He can deal with our need any way he wants to, and the way he deals with mine is different from the way he deals with yours. And then I have a third point I want us to think about. Uh, by this time in John's gospel, it, it's it really starts to penetrate us, and it's this. We're beginning to see that Jesus never gets tired of finding ordinary people and making them whole. Jesus never gets tired of finding ordinary people and getting whole. For the last 50 years in ministry, that's what I've tried to do, is try to find ordinary people and try to help them get whole in a relationship with Jesus. 
I think that's what he calls us to do. I think that's what the, the Sermon on the Mount is, is saying to us. <clears throat> You'll find ordinary people. Jesus never gets tired of finding people like the woman at the well. Never gets tired of, of finding, you know, this, uh, this, this royal official. Never gets tired of, of finding Johnny the Chronic. You know, we try to avoid these people many times. He never gets tired of finding you and me in the midst of our discouragement, in the midst of the things that discourage us and depress us and disappoint us. He never gets tired of taking ordinary people like you and me and making us whole. That's why I love that song, Relentless Love, or what's it called? Reckless Love. Reckless love. I mean, it, it, it just says it so well. You know, I have a quote this morning I, I'd like to um, leave with you from a book called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. It's uh, one of my favorite books. Chesterton writes these lines. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality. Because they are in spirit fierce and free. They, therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again and again until they're nearly dead, don't we? Those of us who are grandparents, those of us who have little children, we keep doing it over and over again. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. You know, I think that if we followed Jesus around very long, I, th I don't think it'd take us very long before we were bored with some of the stuff Jesus was doing. I think Judas got bored. And I think, as I've told you before, I think I could make a really good case that Judas got bored with what Jesus was doing. They come into Jerusalem, uh, and, and here's this guy, Johnny the Chronic, and Jesus spends all his time dealing with him, a nothing, a nobody, who can't make any difference, and across the street, here's the chief priest. Go talk to him. He can make a real difference. Instead, a whole chapter is given to this guy. Chapter 5 in, in, in the Gospel of John. And Jesus wastes opportunity after opportunity dealing with all these nobody people and all the people that it could make a difference he doesn't pay any attention with it ever. You know, Jesus keeps finding people like this, but he never gets bored with finding people like this. Chesterton's quote goes on this way. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never gotten tired of making them. He can exalt in monotony. It may be that God has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and have grown old. We get bored easily, and our father is younger than we are. You know, I praise God for this story of the man at the pool of Bethesda because it helps me to see again that God doesn't get tired of dealing with my stuff over and over again. He doesn't get to the point where he says, you know, that's it, Wade, you're done. He doesn't get tired of dealing with people like me or people like you. Sometimes I think that God must have far better things to be doing than talking about my particular need about where I am right now. There's so many other people that God could be working with, and here I am coming to him again and again and again about the same old thing. God must get so bored with me. No, he doesn't. 
And that's what this story is all about. It's, it's what Jesus is all about. He keeps finding people like us again and again and again. Finding people in the midst of our discouragement, in the midst of our brokenness, again and again, saying to us, get up, pick up your mats and get out of here. Walk around, get on with life. Live like a responsible person. Walk like a forgiven person. Live like a whole person. Live like a loved person. Quit playing all those silly games that you did when you were sick and now be a responsible person and get on with your life. Get on with your marriage. Get on with your ministry. <clears throat> I guess the question is where we began this evening. Do you want to get well? Because it's harder. It's harder. It's harder to live as a responsible person. It's harder to live under the authority of the Lordship of Jesus Christ than it is to just do whatever you want to do. It's harder to be responsible in terms of things that we say, the actions that we do, in terms of our consciousness, in terms of the world in which we live. It's harder. But it's better. It's better to flesh out the gospel. It's harder, but it's freer. And that's what freedom means. It's better. It's harder, but it's better. Do you want to be made well? Has Jesus found you? Do you want to be found is the next question. Are you, are you, are you open to coming to him and, and say, forgetting all your excuses and just coming before him and saying, Lord, make me whole. Put my life together. Whatever it means, Lord, I'm open to following. I'm open to doing whatever it's call, you're calling me to be. Wow. And he says, I'll be with you. He says, pick up your pallet, pick up your mat and walk around and I'll be with you. I'll help you, I'll encourage you, I'll surround you, I'll put you in a body of believers who will encourage you as you do this. But you gotta get on with your life. Get up and get well. Do you hear him saying that to you this evening? Do you wanna hear him say, do you wanna be made well? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that there's nothing that you want more than for us to be whole. For us to represent you in this world and so lord we're willing to get up to pick up our mat and to walk around being responsible with the things that you've called us to be lord thank you that you never get tired of hearing our needs and you're always willing to put our lives together lord thank you for this i pray in jesus name amen Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.